Well, we will continue in our study of the book of Revelation. We're in the beginning of chapter 12, so if you haven't already turned there. Session number 17, we will complete chapter 12 and get close to the end of chapter 13, hopefully. We're still dealing with major characters of this period of time called tribulation. And I think what uh, God lays out for us is this kind of an introduction to major players that we have already seen, some of which, and made allusion to some others. If you remember, there was a beast that was mentioned, and I mentioned that that was the first time that it occurs. Uh, We weren't given a lot of insight into what that beast was all about. We'll get to that in chapter 13. We also talked about Israel as being a part. In fact, when we started the period of tribulation, I said it's primarily for Israel. So here, right off the bat, the first two verses of chapter 12 introduce this image or this symbol of a woman. And the woman represents the nation of Israel. So Israel is one of the major players or characters during this period of time. Next, we looked at a dragon, another symbol. And we saw a description. He was a uh, red dragon in verse 4. And it also describes him as great. So there's going to be a prominent personage that's going to be part of this period of tribulation. We saw in verse 4 kind of a, a review of a fall or a downfall cast to earth. I didn't mention, however, when we were looking at that, when it said his tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Now, the sweeping away of the third and casting them to earth That probably takes place at the very beginning of this period. We don't have a time frame, but this is, again, another interpretive uh, conclusion. And it also appears that this is an event that signals a significant change in the ability of Satan to have access uh, to God himself. In the age in which we live in, it appears that he is certainly the God of this world, but it appears that Satan has freedom to have access to the presence of God. And we see a lot of examples of that. A lot of scholars believe that during the period of tribulation, he will be limited to earth and demons as well. And that makes a lot of sense because there's, there's so much demonic activity that we've already seen the last two trumpet judgments that we looked at. Or at least, uh, what was it, five and six. So a lot of demonic activity, recognize, they recognize, and I think they have a feel for the calendar or the time frame that God has revealed in his word. So if they just study the word, they will know Daniel chapter 9 and know that now they are confined to earth and 
that in fact this is the, the only opportunity they have to do the damage that they do. So they are confined to earth and one of the main functions they will do is to continue what they have done throughout history. They are determined to de destroy this child of the woman. And we have seen historically, this is where we left off the last hour, the seed of the woman sets the seed of the serpent up and there's this battle that will ensue historically. And throughout history, there have been attempts to destroy that particular seed that will ultimately uh, be fulfilled in that one child that is in view in the second personage that we looked at. So, Satan is a murderer. We saw that even right off the bat in Genesis chapter 4. The first seed is actually a murderer. And behind that individual, uh, Cain, in chapter 4 of the book of Genesis, uh, his motivation comes from Satan. We also saw in the line of Seth, God is going to work through that line. And by the time we get to chapter 6, regardless of how you interpret those early verses, uh, the main thrust of chapter 6 is the corruption of both lines. Whether it be a physical and a spiritual corruption or primarily a merging of the lines, whatever view you take. Uh, all of this, Satan is attacking the line of Messiah. <clears throat> so in chapter 12, we have kind of a review and a reminder of, of what uh, Satan is attempting to do uh, in terms of uh, Jesus Christ. With Abraham, we saw that God made promises to Abraham, even covenants. And again, dealing with descendants. Ishmael is a descendant that was not uh, what God intended. God intended uh, to provide for Abraham and Sarah. Ishmael is a byproduct of that. Another attempt to derail what God had planned. And there's other examples in between some of these as well. I'm just giving you the highlights of this historical background of what we have in chapter 12. Israel and Egypt, the children that were destroyed, an attempt to limit the line of Messiah ultimately, and the children in bondage. Uh, David, once he was anointed, Saul attempted to kill him on, I can't remember what, 22 occasions? I can't remember the number of them, nine, or I, I can't remember the number. Does anybody remember how many times? Uh, so David is under assault by the reigning king to get rid of him. David is the, the anointed one that would be the forefather, ultimately, of Messiah. We have, in the progress of the kings, we have the destruction of the line and there's one that is remaining as a child. He has to be preserved. That's Joash. Joash. Uh, they hide him in order to preserve him from uh, the wicked uh, usurper to the throne there. The, the woman that serves as Israel's queen, I guess. And he, the, the text makes it clear that God preserves him. But more attempts to destroy the line. Esther, the whole nation is 
on the verge of uh, extermination. Like I said, there's, there's other examples besides these. Uh, Satan's attack on the line, trying to destroy ultimately. And even in the coming of Messiah, we see Herod attempting to destroy the children in order to eliminate the so-called king of Israel. And then uh, Satan thought, oh, I've got him. I've got him on the cross. I've finally, in history, destroyed the seed of the woman. And God transformed that into the means by which he would utilize to bring us into a saving relationship with himself. And it also basically defeated Satan such that uh, ultimately it's just a matter of time when his days are ended. Book of Revelation are giving the last days of Satan, basically. So these are just examples of what we have in Genesis chapter 12. So, in chapter 12, dealing with the main characters, we have the woman, we have the dragon, we saw the male child, it's hinted at in verse 2, and then expanded on in verses 5 and 6, and we have several incidents relating or events relating to this child, and like I said, take a look at these little glimpses, uh, something like that uh, illustration that I used of a box full of photographs and you pull one up and you see these different stages. They're not necessarily always chronological. So in verse, verse <coughs> 5, let's see, and she gave birth to a son, a male child. And notice it says, who is to rule? Well, the birth, she gave birth, that, that probably is a picture of incarnation. In fact, we use the Isaiah passage that refers to the incarnation, and we look at the gospel accounts. Uh, this is Jesus Christ, the male child. But then it jumps way ahead to him ruling. So we have, like I said, it's not chronological, it's not in order. Uh, this child who is to rule all the nations that looks ahead at the second coming and the millennial kingdom is to rule with a rod of iron. That's pretty frequent in the book of Revelation, alluding to the passages in Isaiah. And her child was caught up to God. That's out of chronological order. That's probably an allusion to ascension. And to his throne, which could be either the throne that Christ is at the right hand of right now. And if so, then it refers to the session. Uh, or another possibility is back to the rule during the millennial kingdom, one or the other. And or maybe even both. So I'm not real necessarily set on the session there. Uh, but I am set in terms of incarnation, rule, and ascension. And this could be one or, or, one or the other. So, again, like I said, just little pictures, little snapshots that you pull out of the shoebox that may not be in any particular order. Just glimpses of these major personages and their major roles and their major um, ministry. And then the woman, in verse 6, fled into the wilderness 
For she had a place prepared by God so that there might be, she might be nourished for, there we go again, there's the number again, 1,260 days. Same number that we already looked at, three and a half years. So as you can see, this occurs uh, frequently, the, the reference to three and a half years. Yes, uh, that's, this is probably the last three and a half. And that coordinates with what Jesus says in uh, the Olivet Discourse, where he instructs the nation of Israel, when you see the abomination that makes desolate that Daniel referred to, get out of town. In other words, flee. And I think this is a reference to that same, uh, that, uh, same time frame. So Israel will experience another exile, if you will, or at least removal from Jerusalem and maybe even out of the land of Israel. So she remains there for uh, three and a half years, basically. And that will protect her. So those are the first three major personages that we will see over and over during this period of time. And some of them we've already seen. We've already seen references to the woman not using the symbol, but to the nation of Israel. Uh, we've had references to uh, work of Satan through demonic forces. Uh, we've seen the Lord Jesus Christ already, not as a child, but as the lamb primarily. Several references to the lamb, and we'll see several more. Uh, remember, this heavenly explanation is kind of backtracking and just filling in more detail concerning what's going on during this period of time. The emphasis in chapter 12 and 13 is not on the events. The emphasis is on the personalities or the, uh, the, the people or the, the groups of people. We've been seeing events elapsing during the period of time. Now the focus is an explanation concerning the major players. And the first three, the woman, the dragon, and the ma uh, male child. Uh, there's a fourth one here. I summarize it under war and wrath, but you could also even call that angels, angelic, angelic involvement. Again, we've seen angels over and over and over in the book of Revelation, and now particularly in verses 7 through 17, reference to... Uh, Spiritual warfare, basically, in the heavenly places. And it's going to explain a little bit more of the verse that we read earlier. So let's look at verses 7 through 17. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels uh, waging war with the dragon. We know who the dragon is from verse 9 that we looked at. And the dragon and his angels waged war. And they, who does they refer to? Oops, what's the closest antecedent? Uh, the dragon and his angels. There's two sets of angels here. Michael and his angels, the dragon and his angels, the closest antecedent are the angels associated with the dragon. They were not strong enough, they... And there was no longer, here's support to uh, the idea that I presented earlier, that they are confined to earth. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven. 
So they are limited. They're cast to earth and limited to their damage on the planet. Uh, this is part of the reason that things are so horrendous. It's because we have so much demonic and satanic, satanic uh, activity during this period of time. And the great dragon, we already read this verse, was thrown down. Another reference to this falling. And it defines for us unmistakably, it's the serpent of old. Going all the way back to Genesis 3. Serpent of old who is called the devil. So there's no question who the identity of this symbol is. The reason he's portrayed as a dragon is because of it, it reveals the character or the uh, destructiveness of who Satan is. Uh, we also have these names that we find frequently in Scripture. Devil or accuser. And Satan... Another name who deceive, who deceives the whole world. This is the main means that uh, Satan does his destruction. Uh, very frequent in Scripture, Satan doesn't do overt manipulation of people. He simply floods their minds either with false doctrine or false ideas or ungodly motives and lets individuals uh, make their own choices from there. Uh, the battle that we deal with in terms of dealing with people is predominantly an intellectual one. One to renew the thinking of people to try to remove a lot of the deception. Most unbelievers uh, are deceived in many ways. They think everything is okay for one in terms of spiritual matters. Uh, they have false concepts of, of who God is. This is all a work of satanic activity. It's a matter of uh, delusion, delusion or deluding of minds of people that we will have everyday contact with. So that's his main function. We could expand more and more and give you lots of verses on that one. So he's thrown down to earth. Uh, he deceives the whole world and he's thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So we have at least three references to this casting down to earth. Now, from our perspective, he has not been cast down yet. But there will be this period of time, this seven years, where it does appear that he'll be confined uh, in terms of activity to planet earth. All right. Does that make sense? And then in verse 12, so there's this, this, this spiritual battle. And we don't know probably the extent. We have little glimpses. You have passages in, uh, for example, I think, what is it, First Kings or Second Kings 22? I don't remember if it's first or second. Where we're given a little glimpse of what's going on in the heavenly realm and a conversation with God and angels. Uh, we see passages in Daniel where angels are involved and it seems that uh, angels are involved in influencing kings and kingdoms. So we really don't have, other than these little glimpses, an idea of how much things are being orchestrated beyond even the human realm. And probably more than uh, we even realize. Uh, this goes on, but now there's a shift. The influence will continue, but now it's confined to earth. 
And now there is, to some extent, a victory by God's good angels, by Michael and his angels. Uh, But the deception and the destruction continues, and some of the destruction is more direct and even more overt and more physical. Now, there are some scholars that also believe that during this period of time, demons will manifest themselves in visible form, and that's supported by uh, those two uh, trumpet judgments that we saw where uh, John describes... Uh, appearance of them and they probably appeared exactly the way well they probably will appear exactly the way John describes so they may be able to manifest themselves in some visible way during this period of time whereas this is different from uh, other periods of time unless there are also some that believe that uh, demons possibly could have manifested themselves before the Genesis flood Uh, again that's just a conclusion So, uh, these little bits and pieces of exegetical data uh, might lead to that conclusion. So, in verse 10, And I heard a loud voice, again, lots of noise in heaven, saying, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. It jumps ahead again. See, these are not chronological here. It's just giving us pictures, snapshots, glimpses. So the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. Well, we're not at the end of this period. We have, we're going to go back and look at some more events. But it's giving us a look ahead. Uh, and this is in heaven. So it's, it's a heavenly uh, praise in verse 10. Salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. There's a fourth reference to this casting down. Who accuses them before our God day and night. And that's the main function of Satan before God in access. He's continually, right now, when we sin, he's probably pointing it out. And God turns around and reminds him, I've dealt with that sin. Uh, I have dealt with all of that sin That person has been forgiven. That person has been uh, declared righteous and stands before me in the righteousness provided by Jesus Christ. Satan continues to accuse us. Uh, So there's this battle that goes on. Uh, But now it seems to be limited. He's thrown down. He He no longer has that function during the tribulation. And then verse 11 expands on... Uh, the voice in heaven, and they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. The they refers to the overcomers, to the believers. They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. That's the basis, and that's what God will point to. The finished sacrifice of the Lamb. So we have another reference to Jesus Christ. It occurs 28 times in the book of Revelation. Jesus referred to as the Lamb. One more occasion here. Uh, They have overcome Him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. They have been bold enough to proclaim the gospel 
And probably as a result of proclaiming the gospel, they're experiencing persecution. And I think that's what's in view. Because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even to death. So here's reminders of what we've seen already. A lot of persecution that ends in martyrdom. Most of the believers during this period of time uh, will be martyred. Most of them will die. And here's just an encouraging note that uh, it's not the end of the believers. In fact, uh, it's a glorious thing that they've done. And it's a victory. Martyrdom in the book of Revelation is not uh, the end. It's, it's victorious. They have been faithful and they've died for their faithfulness. And now they are they're actually praised in, uh, in passages like this one in chapter 12. Uh, evidence of their overcoming. It's on the basis of the blood of the Lamb. And the, that salvation experience motivated them to uh, give testimony. That testimony results in martyrdom uh, to the point that they did not even uh, value their own life. Oh, we lost uh, communication there. How'd that happen? Thank you, sir. And then verse 12, for this reason, remember this is a heavenly scene put in the midst of this. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. This is a contrast with uh, the earth dwellers. These are heavenly dwellers. And just about every scene that we've seen out of heaven, uh, the result of what John sees is rejoicing. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, and then woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down. Number five. Five references. He has come down having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. So I mentioned earlier that Satan is aware of the time frame. He probably knows Daniel 9, and here's confirmation of that. Uh, So this is an intense period of time. So that's through verse 12. The war continues, and when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to earth, there's number six, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. This is the more intense persecution. I think the church probably experienced some, or not the church, the uh, nation of Israel and the believers during this period of time experienced persecution before But now, in the second half of the tribulation, is more intense persecution. He was thrown down to the earth and he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And she will receive divine protection. Let's see, I've got another... Uh, Somewhat of a summary here. We have war and wrath. 
Verse 7, to kind of summarize what we've been talking about. We have the warriors identified. We have two armies, one of uh, good angels led by Michael. And then we have the other army of the dragon and his angels. In verses 8 and 9, the battle is won. So I call that win in verses 8 and 9. Verses 10 through 12, we just looked at the worship. Using alliteration again. Next, we're going to see persecution. Verse 13. And then beginning in verse 13, we have protection using P as my alliteration device there. And two wings of the great eagle... Some commentators interpret that as the United States. It's always about us, remember? (laughs) Here's another example of that. Uh, I don't think that's a proper uh, view. I don't don't see the United States in any biblical prophecy. Maybe very vague allusions in a couple passages, but nothing nothing very overt. Uh, A literal eagle of some sort, two wings of a... of the great eagle, I'm not sure exactly what is in view there, who were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. Now, some people think uh, this is possibly, uh, uh, the name escapes me. Uh, There's some references in the Old Testament. Help me out here. Petra, yeah. Uh, And it's very likely and possible that that might be the location because that's probably the location of a couple of passages in the Old Testament that make allusion to the same event. Uh, So it's very possible. Uh, That's a viable interpretation. It appears that uh, she will be able to flee there in order to escape the persecuting uh, work of the dragon. So she flies there on the wings of a great eagle in order that she may be in her place where she was nourished. And there we go again. There's a reference to a time frame. So this is divine protection, divine provision. And in this case, we have a time, singular. Times. This is directly out of Daniel. Daniel uses the exact phraseology. Uh, time, singular, times, plural, referring to probably two. So you add one and two, you have three and half a time. And that's the period three and a half years. In Daniel, it's clearly three and a half years. And in the book of Revelation, it coordinates with all the other descriptions of the three and a half year period of time. So she's nourished for a time times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Uh, And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with a flood, with the flood. And the earth helped the woman. This may be something like what you have in the Old Testament uh, where God protected the Israelites on occasions from uh, persecution. 
the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river, which the notice it shifts back to the dragon poured out of his mouth. So you have an interchange between the serpent, verses 14 and 15, and then back to the dragon. So uh, using the two titles together here. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. Now, who are they, probably? What, what, how might we interpret the offspring of the woman? Um, I'm not sure. Possibly, there, there might still be some anti-Semitic... Um, Efforts there, uh, maybe other Israelites that are not converted. I think the converted ones are protected. Uh, more than likely, because of what follows there, is probably the result of some of the evangelism of Jewish people, uh, other offspring, in other words, other people that are regenerated. Because notice in the, in the phrase there, it says, who keep the commandments of God, so they're probably believers as well. And hold to the testimony of Jesus. It's the woman that flees, but keep in mind there are others that become believers during the tribulation. So the dragon is now going to persecute non-Jewish people as well. And that's probably the best understanding of who the offspring of the woman uh, include. Other believers that are not Jewish... Yeah, that are not Jewish, because the woman flees into the wilderness, which would include the, the Jewish converts, Jewish believers. So, sounds like it. it. It says the woman, so the woman represents Israel. Uh, not every Jew, I would say every believing Jew. The ones that obey the fleeing command that the, that the Lord Jesus issues in the Olivet Discourse. So the offspring of the woman, uh, I, I, I take it to be uh, other converts. They're described similar to other uh, to believers in other places. They keep the commandments of God. In other words, they are obedient to what God has com commanded. And secondly, they hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's probably a reference to uh, in the midst of this difficult time, in the midst of risking their own lives, they still are sharing the gospel. They're still, share, still sharing testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. So their life reflects uh, obedience in that they obey the commands. And secondly, not only that, but they, they're not hiding. In fact, there's some good applications here that we can draw on. You know, we live in a pretty free time to be able to share the gospel. And sometimes we're intimidated by what people might think or uh, we might even be intimidated that uh, people might say bad things about us or reject the gospel or whatever. Uh, these are representative of faithful people during the tribulation that sharing the gospel at that time means that you might die. Uh, you're risking your life. And they are praised here uh, indirectly. So I take it that these are other probably Gentile believers that are new converts that uh, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ during the tribulation period. And that gives us, there's a purging, verse 15. 
the, the purging is persecution. There's preservation in 16. The earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth, drank up the river. And verse 17, there's a persistence of believers. They continue in, in the midst of a difficult time uh, to hold the testimony of Jesus Christ. So that's the war and the wrath where angelic beings are also involved. We've seen already the involvement of lots of angels. We're going to see that all the way through the rest of the book of Revelation. Uh, Putting all this on a timeline, when do these things take place? We've already mentioned some things. We've looked at the covenant. We've looked at the prophets. We've looked at 144,000. We talked about conversion and we talked about persecution. This persecution, I don't think, begins at the midpoint. I think it intensifies at the midpoint. And the Jewish people are made a particular and an identifiable group of people that are targets now. So I see persecution in the first three and a half years probably intensifying and beginning in the middle. We have uh, the most intense Uh, The chronology here comes from the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Jesus doesn't pinpoint the midpoint, but he refers to the event that is at the midpoint. Daniel pinpoints this abomination that makes desolate at the midpoint. Jesus refers to uh, Antichrist and Daniel. And this text says that they are preserved for three and a half years, so this has to coordinate with it. And it's probably the the last half. Uh, And it's also after, Jesus is the one that says, when you see the abomination makes desolate, get out of town. So I would put the fleeing of the woman at the midpoint, and then she's preserved through the last three and a half years. Okay? Okay. So that's chapter 12, verse 17. And that moves us to chapter 13. Any questions on chapter 12? Four major characters or group of characters. Probably should change that to angels to kind of be consistent here. Israel, Satan himself, Jesus Christ, angelic creatures. Both good angels and demonic angels or fallen angels. Uh, Very active during the period of time that we're looking at. Dr. Ray, did you put the... uh, Where the fallen angels are, I guess, kicked out of heaven along with Satan. Did you put that at the midpoint? No, I'd put that at the beginning. Beginning of the tribulation? Yeah. Now, that's not clear. We don't have a little notation in terms of a time frame. But we've already seen, for example, we've already seen, for example, depends on where those trumpet judgments, it's unclear where those trumpet judgments fall. A lot of scholars put them starting or at least some of them in the first three and a half years. And some scholars put all of the trumpet judgments in the first three and a half. So if you have all of them in the first three and a half, you have two trumpet judgments that are invasions. One of them, probably a demon possessed army. Uh, That's why I'm inclined to to see them throughout the seven-year period of time. 
Uh, chapter 12, like I've already emphasized, is not chronological. Uh, and even the individual incidents seem to be like picking up these little glimpses like a photograph out of a, out of a shoebox that you have them all mixed up. So chapter 13 introduces us to the fifth major personage that we uh, identify as Antichrist, first beast. Chapter 13. Beginning in verse 1. Uh, there's a textual issue. For the sake of time, I won't get into it in terms of the he in verse 1. Um, I can't remember what the options are. I think he or I. I, I can't remember exactly. So it's either John or a reference to somebody outside. New American Standard refers to he Separate from John, it, uh, I think most of, or I can't remember which of the texts support one and which support the other. We'll have to go back to that if you need to. Pardon me? Yes, chapter 13. Yeah, he, yeah. It, uh, there's a textual problem that uh, would indicate that John would be in view. It's either I or he. Yeah. But it's not a big point here. Uh, whoever's standing on the seashore, John is, John is certainly seeing the vision. Uh, New American Standard chooses he, referring to the, uh, the beast, or, or the dragon, rather. Uh, did I say beast? I meant dragon. And he stood on the sand of the seashore, referring back, and I saw, this is clear, in fact, we have the, uh, the phrase that occurs over and over, kai idon, or the, yeah, the phrase, kai uh, and I saw a beast. And the meaning doesn't change either decision you make on the textual problem. I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Now, commentators discuss uh, what the meaning of that might be. What does it mean, the sea? Well, to the Jewish thinking, uh, the sea, and we can visualize this ourselves, the oceans are always in flux. The oceans are always moving out. They're, they're kind of a, a picture of uh, the opposite of stability. The opposite of something that is solid and stable. Uh, and it sometimes is an image of, uh, uh, of lost humanity or the nations. And probably the best interpretation is that this is an image. Uh, we have imagery here. We have a beast. It's following after the pattern of chapter 12. This beast probably is a, an image of something very specific that we'll look at. Uh, we'll conclude concerning who he is. In fact, I gave away who I think he is. And if he comes out of the sea, more than likely he is Gentile. Uh, I think that's probably the reference. And more specifically, the sea, the sea that's adjacent to the land of Israel is obviously the Mediterranean. And in the first century... The sea was looked at as the Gentile nations, 
of the Roman Empire in the first century. Uh, most scholars, there are some that uh, think that he might be a Gentile, uh, I mean a, a Jew, but most of the conservative scholars believe that he is going to be a Gentile. Uh, and probably the evidence is in favor of that. Um, the support is this idea of him coming out of the sea. And then we have again, we have uh, having ten horns, in this case, ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, similar imagery of Daniel, similar, similar imagery that we already saw in uh, chapter 12. And in addition, on his heads were blasphemous names. This is a picture of a personage from God's perspective. He's a beast. He's beastly. He has authority. He's going to be a ruler. He's going to have an empire. The horns are imagery and the heads are imagery of heads of governments. The crowns are royal crowns. So there's going to be a personage that is associated with an empire, at least uh, a, a ten-nation empire. This comes right out of Daniel. These are the ten toes of the vision that Daniel had in the vision of these empires that arise up. We're going to have more specific detail and more interpretation of that in chapter 17. Did you want to ask a question on it right away? Very similar, yeah. Yes. Yeah, and uh, there's a close association with the beast and the dragon. We're going to see that. In, in other words, they're, they're going to be united in their efforts and the outcome of what they do. And part of the imagery ties the two together. And in some cases, it's hard even to distinguish between the two. They're so close together. We're going to end up, by the way, we're going to end up viewing what we would describe as an, what we could describe as an unholy trinity. We're going to have a counterfeit God, the Father, that's the dragon. We're going to have a counterfeit Messiah, that's this first beast. In the second half of Revelation chapter 13, we're going to have a counterfeit Holy Spirit. That's the second beast. The Holy Spirit gives glory to Jesus Christ and the Father. The second beast is going to glorify the first beast, who is a, a, a counterfeit Messiah. He's going to be a messianic, savior type person. So what we have operating during this tribulation period is an un unholy trinity that all work together to accomplish the goals of the dragon, who is Satan himself. So we have the second person of this unholy trinity introduced to us. Uh, and that's why there's this close association. Just as in Scripture, sometimes when you read a passage in the Old Testament, it's hard to distinguish whether the Father is in view or whether the Son, the Old Testament, doesn't make a sharp distinction. 
We saw similarly, even in the book of Revelation, something like that, where some of the images are hard to distinguish between the Father and Son because they're so closely related. So also with the unholy trinity, there's going to be a close relationship between Satan and his uh, incarnation. Uh, We'll have an incarnation of Satan himself. And it's hard to distinguish the two. They work together. So, verse 1, we'll come back to that. And the beast... Uh, first, we're going to have a description of his person. And verse 1 alludes to this political sovereignty. Uh, the diadems, uh, there's two, I think we've mentioned there's two words for crowns. New American Standard distinguishes them in the translation here. Uh, there's Stephanus. What kind of a crown is Stephanus? We've seen that one already. What kind of a crown is that one? Victory, a victor's crown, exactly. It's a crown of victory. It was the type of crown or wreath that was placed on an athlete or it was placed on someone that accomplished certain things. So it's a, a meritorious meritorious crown. Diadema, and the New American Standard kind of transliterates it, these diadems from the Greek word diadema are crowns of royalty. In other words, these are bestowed on somebody not necessarily because of merit, but uh, because of relationship. Sometimes kings do not deserve to be kings, but they are given kingship because of their relationship to their father, or whatever the case may be. Here we have diadema. So these are crowns that indicate sovereignty, political sovereignty, heads, kings of nations. And we have the Antichrist as head over them. This is the imagery here. So verse 2, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. That goes back to Daniel. Remember the visions of the kingdoms that Daniel foresees that would, in fact, uh, rule the world. One of them was in the form of a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear. That's the image of another kingdom. In fact, they're in the reverse order of Daniel. And his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. That's another one. Uh, What John is telling us Reminding us that in Daniel we had these three kingdoms, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And these kingdoms would come in succession. This final age kingdom will be a composite, in fact, a joining together of all of the evil characteristics of all those prior kingdoms. So it's a putting together of the image of Daniel into this one kingdom that will be headed by this one individual. So it's going to combine all of the negative aspects of those kingdoms that Daniel describes. So the beast which you saw was like a leopard, etc. And then the middle of verse 2, and the dragon, there's the relationship here, 
gave him his power and his throne and great authority. The authority of this beast is directly from uh, Satan himself. The uh, counterfeit, it's like Jesus Christ, has all authority in heaven and earth. Remember he claimed that, Matthew 24, I mean uh, 28, uh, what is it, verse 20. Jesus Christ is given all authority. Uh, Jesus was given authority to judge by the Father. Uh, Similarly, we have the counterfeit Messiah given all of his authority from the dragon, who is Satan himself. So he has full satanic power. In fact, you could even consider him the incarnation of Satan himself. A counterfeit incarnation. And then he has something interesting happen to him. So we have the authority. I think I have uh, the beast's identity. Who is the beast? We'll get to that in a moment. Let's read some more and then we'll look at that. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. What's the, what's the counterfeit description there? The land that was slain? Yes, uh, it's a counterfeit death and resurrection. A miraculous act or an appearing of something miraculous. It may be a seeming death and resurrection. Commentators debate whether or not it's a real death and a real resurrection or whether it's simply a counterfeit and a a seeming death and resurrection. Um, I'm not sure which has the most support. Either one could work here. Right. I'm inclined in that direction. Yeah, thank you. Uh, So one of his heads, as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound, although the language here is somewhat, uh, at least at this point, favoring a real death of some sort, uh, and perhaps a, a real miracle of some sort, but it's a satanic Uh, miracle, regardless of what's happening here. Uh, By the way, Satan is able to perform miracles. This is part of the support for that idea. Uh, Not all miracles that occur in church history are necessarily from God. Satan has ability to perform miracles. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us pretty clearly that there will be miraculous works during this period of time. And this is one of the main miracles that occurs during this period of time. This miracle obviously has a definite effect on the whole earth. The whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. If he can perform such a rising from the dead, uh, then perhaps maybe he is a real savior, a real uh, messianic figure. Verse 4. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshipped the beast. 
So they're worshiping overtly Satan. Now, they, most of the people may not be aware, but they're acknowledging, when it distinguishes the two here, they're acknowledging that they recognize that there is supernatural power behind the beast. They worship whoever bestows that supernatural power. And they worship the visible, overt personage of the beast himself. Well, who is this beast? And again, we have all these variety of uh, interpretations. The reformers, almost unanimously, and keep in mind, the reformers didn't do a lot of eschatological work. That was a weakness of the Reformation. Uh, the reformers did uh, very excellent work in the area of soteriology, their, their theology in terms of uh, eschatology or Bible prophecy uh, was not as good. Uh, this view comes out of the Reformation, that it was a reference to Rome. And it gave them some justification to abandon and reject Roman Catholicism. So that's a view that comes out of the Reformation. Uh, Kind of a broad interpretation of what's going on here and the beast is just worldly government in general. Uh, I think it's more specific, however. Uh, The preterist view, you can probably tell me what the preterist view is. What would be the preterist view? The Roman Empire of the first century. The beast is the Roman Empire of the first century. That's the preterist view. Uh, Another general view, this is some idealists that take an idealist uh, approach. See it as heresy, just theological heresy in general. And again, you remember they do a lot of spiritualizing, so they have a lot of liberty with the words. More than likely... Going along with Daniel and along with the uh, descriptions that John seems to allude to back in Daniel, we know that there will be an empire, another kingdom. There'll be a Roman Empire, and then there's another kingdom that arises that's related to that first kingdom, Rome. And most conservative scholars hold that it's a revived Roman Empire with uh, a very specific dictator, uh, a very specific personage. So the beast is the, uh, the person of what we would describe as Antichrist. The word Antichrist doesn't occur in the book of Revelation. It's a word that we've acquired from John, but it only occurs uh, like four times, I can't remember, and all of them in the writings of John, First uh, John primarily. Uh, so we, we uh, as conservatives, we've just uh, taken that word because it's an easy word to describe this personage. Uh, some of the descriptions, when it speaks of the beast, you have to look at the context. Sometimes it seems like it's referring to the, uh, the empire of the beast, and sometimes it seems to be dealing individually. I think in chapter 12, the emphasis is more on the dictator who is kind of the... Uh, uh, the personage that represents the whole empire because he's got control over it. Uh, That's the best view in terms of who uh, the beast represents. So, this viewpoint is the futurist viewpoint 
and looks forward as opposed to the preterist that tries to find all of the fulfillment in the first century. So we anticipate in the future, well, we won't be there if we have the right interpretation of the rapture, but there will appear on the earth a revived empire that is probably composed of at least peoples that occupy the same geographical regions as the Roman Empire did in the first century. So it would include primarily Europe and the countries associated with the Mediterranean. There's going to be a ten-nation confederacy. Daniel makes that clear. We have allusions when we have these ten horns and references there to a a group or an alliance of ten nations. Who they are, uh, the European Union has exceeded ten. Uh, but other, some may drop out. I'm not saying that that's the ten nations, but something like that. All of those are associated with uh, the ancient Roman Empire, at least geographically. Uh, but there's going to be a ten-nation confederacy that uh, rises to power, headed by a dynamic individual who, in fact, takes control of all of those ten nations. That is a power base that leads to him controlling the whole world. And we'll see other passages that indicate that as well. Uh, So that's probably the best interpretation of the identity of the beast. What are his characteristics? He's got a beastly nature. What we mean by that is he is a destroyer, just like we saw in chapter 11. He does a lot of destruction. He's beastly in relationship to Israel and that he attempts to destroy the nation of Israel. Uh, This is pulling together a lot of passages from both Old Testament and New Testament. He will be a global king ultimately, beginning, I think, with that ten-nation confederacy. He is... Anti-God and very self-centered. We might call that anti-God egotist. Uh, We get that idea from great boasts that Daniel speaks of, of this personage. Uh, Second Thessalonians speaks of him speaking blasphemy. So he's anti-God and an egotist. Second Thessalonians also indicates that he sets himself in the temple to be worshipped by men. He will be a totalitarian leader. He will have absolute control over all life. He will be a supernatural person. He will have uh, supernatural abilities. He will be a miracle worker. In fact, you can think of some of the things that Jesus Christ did and he will impersonate some of those major things, particularly the The things like miracles. He won't impersonate humility probably, but (laughs) other than humility, he will attempt to present himself as a savior. Uh, He is a personal being. And like I said, sometimes the beast is in some, it seems like in some context, it may refer to the whole empire. And sometimes it refers to a person. 
and perhaps even both. So he has political sovereignty, using P's here. He does a pseudo-sign, a seeming death and resurrection. We saw that in that passage in chapter 13. So he's a miracle worker. Uh, very charismatic. He will be like a Saul. Remember the people said, you know, Saul. And uh, the scriptures in the Old Testament speak of Saul as being head and shoulders taller. So he was probably a, a muscular guy, a big guy, a guy that is dynamic. He was the, the, the king of the people's choice in the Old Testament. He's going to be an attractive person, a charismatic person, somebody that has a way with words. No, it's not Obama. I think he's Obama. He's too, uh, he's too wimpy. <laughs> somebody that uh, the world is drawn to and the world uh, is looking for. Somebody that uh, can draw people's attention. And then top that off with the ability to perform miracles the world is going to fall for this guy. He's going to have everything in terms of a man that the world is looking for in terms of a Savior. Okay. There's some praise sharing. I think we already looked at that verse. They worship, they, they worship the dragon because of he gave his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him. So they're very impressed with him. And there was given to him a mouth. Here's the arrogance again, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act... What do we have here? How many years? Authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Now, this, this is hard to decide as to whether it's the first half or the second half. Uh, it appears that possibly it's the first half because that's when he rises to power uh, I think he initially gains a lot of popularity amongst at least Jews and probably other peoples when he signs that that covenant, the contract. So it's probably, uh, I'm inclined to see this as the first three and a half years. And I think he rises to such a prominent place that in the middle, he is bold enough to do what Daniel says that is an abominable thing. And I think the abominable thing is that he claims to be God himself. Uh, again, there are scholars that put it at the last three and a half. But I see the empire falling apart in the last three and a half. So he's given authority to act. In other words, most of his damage is done in the first three and a half, more than likely. Uh, verse 9 and he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God. So he's anti-God. To blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. And, uh, and, and that is those who dwell in heaven. In other words, the heavenly dwellers. Against the con against, again, a contrast. And notice again, it says, and it was given to him. The same phrase we've seen over and over. 
that is also in the passive. Given to him. Uh, there's forces behind acting. It's not just solely Antichrist acting apart from God allowing, permitting, setting circumstances such that Antichrist is going to move in directions that ultimately will uh, serve God's purposes. Without God violating His holiness. So, it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Another allusion to persecution. Uh, They are overcome in that uh, they die, but in reality, they overcome in becoming martyrs. That is overcoming uh, the beast because that's not the end. They will be uh, raised and they will be glorified. So he has authority to make war with the saints. And notice it doesn't refer to them as ecclesia. The church is never mentioned. In fact, the word ecclesia, which is the translation or the word that we translate church, it's never found in chapters 4 through 22, or 21 rather. There's a reference in chapter 22 in the conclusion, but it's simply a, a, uh, a reference to John exhorting, or, the, or an angel exhorting John to deliver the book of Revelation to the churches. Uh, there is one reference to the church, but ecclesia is not in the context. We'll see that in chapter 19. And the church is not on earth in that uh, context. But there are believers. And as dispensationalists, we believe that the church, this is not the church. These are saints. They're referred to as saints distinct from members of the ecclesia. Does that make sense? Uh, it appears dispensationally, church, the church has a beginning on earth and has an end on earth. Has a beginning on the day of Pentecost, so it does not include Old Testament saints. And it has an end uh, as far as earthly presence uh, on the day of rapture. That is the church age. The church is taken out. But there's new believers, and in the book of Revelation, they're always referred to either using the word saints or holy ones or other phrases that uh, refers to them. They're, they're also called overcomers. Uh, so don't miss that little tiny note there. The church is not there. Uh, make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe. So these are probably Gentiles. Every tribe and people and tongues and nations was given to him. Well, actually, those are unbelievers. His authority over all, in other words, his his uh, kingdom will eventually be totalitarian over the whole world. And he will be a counterfeit God. Let's see, where's that? I'm losing my place here. Uh, yeah, beginning in verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth. There's that phrase again. Earth dwellers. Uh, in every context, they are unbelievers. This one is clearly unbelievers. 
And all who dwell on the earth will worship him and everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life, book of life of the lamb who has been slain. So everyone except born again believers will fall for the counterfeit Messiah. And they'll be convinced because of his seeming ability to perform miracles. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Kind of a call by the Holy Spirit to discernment. Verse 10, if anyone is destined for captivity. Now, the word destined is not in the original language there. It's just if anyone for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Here's the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Uh, this is another word of sovereignty. In other words, God is orchestrating certain things. Those that will go to captivity will go into captivity. Those that will be, uh, as it says in verse 10, killed with a sword, with a sword must be killed. And then it says here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. You are not amongst those that are to captivity. You are amongst those that are chosen. You are amongst those that God has a future plan. Uh, but it, 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 it's a verse that indicates that God is sovereign and He's going to accomplish what He has intended and will fulfill a plan that He has orchestrated before the foundations of the world. Uh, there's a book from the foundation of the world. It's passages like this that uh, Calvinists find support for Doctrines dealing with uh, election and issues relating to God's uh, determinations that were made in eternity past. That makes sense. So that's the first beast. Uh, we have a program. We ha he has profane opposition to God. That was, what was that verse? Verse 5 and 6. He also has persecuting dominion. Uh, that's uh, 7. Verse 7. And then there's pervasive worship by the earth dwellers. That's eight. Then we have uh, verse nine that is designed to call attention to uh, uh, discernment. Uh, the word didomai, uh, this is going back to that verse that I told you in verse five. It was given to him. Just to kind of re-emphasize this, uh, I've stressed this idea. We have it in 13.2. We have it in verse 4. We have it in verse four, 5. Two times. So, these are predictions of what's going to take place. But the word didomai translated, it was given or given. It, it's very pervasive in, in, uh, in this passage. 
uh, verse 7 two times, verse 15 two times, verse 16. The idea that God is orchestrating events. They're not just happening. God is at least permitting evil to run its full course. We also have another Greek word, poeo, to cause or to make. And that is very prevalent in this chapter as well. Verse 5, 7, 12, 13, 14. We haven't got to some of these verses yet. Uh, Let's see. Let me go back. Um, Yeah, verse 2. And the dragon gave him, in this case, Didomai is the verb related to the dragon, his power. Uh, Verse 4. They worship the dragon because he gave, again, the dragon. It's not always God as the subject, but ultimately... God is the subject behind all that takes place. Okay. Using our little timeline again to kind of visually give us a picture of what's going on. In terms of uh, the beast, after the covenant is signed, that kicks off this period of seven years. I think early on there are ten nations that uh, the beast takes control of and becomes leader over them. And those ten nations become the base for a worldwide empire. And it tells us that he has authority these first three and a half years. And then something happens in the middle that uh, Daniel identifies as abomination, and that's clearly in the middle because Daniel tells us very specifically. He breaks the covenant with Israel. And I see the rest of the seven years as uh, the unraveling of this kingdom such that uh, eventually it is destroyed uh, at the second coming of Christ. So it gives you a timeline of the first beast. There's a second beast. Beginning in verse 11. First, his person is described. Personage. And then again, we'll have his program. And I saw another beast... Uh, from the English, you can't tell. Remember I mentioned there are two words in the Greek that are translated another. What would you suspect this Greek? Alos is another of the same kind. Heteros, another of a different kind. What would you suggest? Same kind. Yeah, alos. So, even before we even look at some of his characteristics, we already know, just from the use of alos, He is similar or has some characteristics in common with the first beast. So we have another personage, another major player during this period of time. Another beast coming out of the earth. Or out of uh, the land. You could even translate the word there, land. 
Some suggest that he may be Jewish. And there might be a little bit of support for this. Uh, I'm inclined to think that he's another Gentile. But he comes out of the earth in contrast to the first beast that comes out of the sea. And he had two horns like a lamb. So he has some authority. And he spoke as a dragon. So there's the similarity and there's a relationship. And he also, he exercised, verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the first beast. See that intimate relationship. This is the third person of the unholy trinity. So he has authority as well. All the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it. There's that little phrase again, the earth dwellers, those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. So he gives glory and he directs worship to the first beast. And notice it's going to refer to this fatal wound several times. Here's the second reference to it. Uh, so this is going to be significant. This is going to be mind-boggling that the world is going to observe. It's going to have an, a tremendous impact. So it's emphasized in the biblical text. So he makes the earth. The makes is that po, poieo word that we looked at in that other slide. He makes the earth or causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. And notice, he is a miracle worker as well. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. Uh, work similar to the prophet Elijah that we looked at earlier. So we have an unholy trinity. We have the dragon, obviously, is Satan himself. That's clearly identified. The second beast is the incarnation of the dragon called Antichrist by John in his letter. And we have a second beast. Elsewhere in the book of Revelation, he's called a false prophet. So he's a prophetic personage. But he's a counterfeit prophet, false prophet. Another, another of the same kind. And there's a political collaboration here. He exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence. He's satanic. He promotes the first beast. Uh, there's a religious component. He does miracles, performs great signs. A prophet. Let's see, does that come in yet? That'll come in later on. But performs miracles. So he's a prophetic character. He's religious. Um, we saw his 
personage that's this program. It'll have political aspects. It'll have religious aspects. It'll have economic control. That's the last part of the passage. Uh, verse 14, he deceives those who are on the earth. Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, verse 13. Yeah, let's read verse 14. He deceives those who dwell on the earth. An emphasis on the earth dwellers because of the signs which he was given. There's Didomai. To perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. Another reference to that uh, counterfeit death and resurrection. And there was given, there's Didomai again, or Edothen is the form there. It was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast. So here's an idol. There's an image that seems to come to life. The image of the beast that he might speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So it's mandatory. Just like in Daniel, when Daniel was, uh, in fact, the children of Israel were expected to bow down before the image that Nebuchadnezzar produced. We have a similar personage here. So that is, we'll get to the economic control uh, that this individual will exert in a moment. Why don't we uh, take a break at this point and we'll conclude chapter 13 and spend most of our time in chapter 14.